Hello, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we're always fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers. These good folks practice on the ground working daily to help their clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're chatting with one of our member firms in Oklahoma. Joining us today on the program are Adam Childers and Alan Hudson, attorneys at Crow and Dunleavy in Oklahoma. Today, Adam and Alan are going to share with us a brief update on considerations for employers regarding vaccination policies, as well as recent legislation on issues arising from the pandemic. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. How are you today? Great. This is Adam. Thanks for having us. We're, we're happy to be here. Yep. And this is Alan. Again, I would echo what Adam said. We're always happy to do a podcast with the ELA and certainly happy to talk to our friends up in Nebraska. Sounds great. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Adam, let's start with you. With vaccinations approved by the FDA under an emergency use authorization and vaccination phases beginning all across the country, a lot of employers are wondering whether they can institute a mandatory vaccination plan for their employees. What are your thoughts on this? Is this something employers can do? Yeah, so I have to admit here, I've had a bit of an evolution of thought in this area, as I think a lot of employment law practitioners on the defense side have had. I think the knee-jerk reaction out of the box by most was, yeah, well, you can have a mandatory vaccination program. The EEOC in the early days of the pandemic made clear that using the direct threat doctrine that we, they were going to allow for certain things that we'd never seen before, you know, unilateral medical examinations, and you know that's what led to the temperature testing and, and other things that happened in the early days. And since then, the EEOC has continued to lay the framework for what appears to be an open door for employers to have a vaccination program that they could mandate for their employees. But I think, like as always is the case, given a little bit of time to look a little bit more granularly, employment practitioners really have discovered a couple of key areas that I think employers need to be aware of. So the first is OSHA. Back in November of 2009, OSHA issued a a mandate that essentially said, look, when it comes to mandatory vaccinations, now remember they were talking primarily about the flu at that time, but made it clear that if you force someone to take a vaccination when they are expressing health and safety concerns about taking that vaccination, that can lead to a retaliation claim under OSHA under Section 11C. So you've got that issue that's out there. Now, perhaps you could deal with that by having as part of your release, the ability to exempt yourself if you do have those kinds of concerns. But then there's a secondary issue that I think is even more important, and that is the fact, and you talked about that this is under an emergency use authorization. Well, any vaccine that is under an EUA is governed by rules of the Food and Drug Administration, and the FDA has a rule in place that says if you're using a drug that essentially is still somewhat experimental, it's only allowed for an emergency basis, that when you use that vaccine, you have to provide a disclaimer to those who receive it that includes instructions telling them what the consequences are if they refuse to take the vaccine and alternatives that exist to the vaccine. 
which means essentially if you followed those rules, you would have to, as part of mandatory vaccination program, provide to the employee directions that are contrary to what you're saying, that it's absolutely mandatory. Now, will the secretary of the FDA want to get involved in matters of the workplace? Hard to say. Will there be a legislative fix or some other regulatory fix that addresses these issues down the line? I think that's potentially likely. But as it stands right now, I think I would give the answer to your question that it's a qualified, yes, you could have one, but you're going to have some other legal pitfalls and bumps that you're going to have to address. And so I, I think that, you know, right now it's a matter of supply and demand. There's not enough supply for any employer to really have a mandatory program. But hopefully, fingers crossed, down the road a couple months, if that's the case, then I think these are the issues that employers are going to have to address. And I can't say without reservation that you could mandate that program. Certainly a lot of difficult issues to think through on that. Alan, turning to you, even if employers don't mandate vaccinations for their employees, are you seeing any employers provide incentives to employees for doing so? And if they do, what are the legal pitfalls in that practice or any other weird wrinkles in the law that could trip up employers trying to help employees get vaccinated? With respect to the first part of the question, um, I have seen employers here in Oklahoma, because it's less than clear, or maybe there are some risks involved with making the vaccinations mandatory, that are coming up with some creative solutions to encourage employees to get the vaccination when possible. And really anything you can think of employers are offering, uh, it could be extra PTO for employees that get the vaccination. It could be in the form of a bonus. You know, I've seen employers offering $100 to any employee that's willing to get the vaccination. Or I've even seen some employers just say, look, everybody that signs up and gets it is going to get a free lunch, you know, next Friday at the employer's expense. So there are, there are lots of ways to kind of incentivize employees to get this vaccination in lieu of making it mandatory. Obviously, if you do this, I do believe you're opening yourself up to some scrutiny under state and federal law. With respect to offering a bonus in the form of, you know, wages, you could run into some Fair Labor Standards Act issues and any other state law equivalent with respect to regular rate of pay and how that could impact overtime. So again, if you're going to offer a cash or wage bonus, ensure that you have run all the traps on that with respect to the Fair Labor Standards Act and any state law equivalent. And then also, you could have issues with respect to discrimination under the American with Disabilities Act and or Title VII with respect to a religious accommodation. You could have employees that for medical reasons can't get the vaccination, and so therefore they may feel that they are being treated differently than other folks that can get the vaccination. The same thing with someone that holds a sincerely held religious belief, and that religious belief cuts against them getting the vaccination, and therefore uh, they also can't participate in this kind of bonus program that the employer has. So again, if you are going to offer some sort of incentive to employees to get the vaccination, I think you need to be prepared to be nimble in how that's applied because you could have circumstances in which you need to address an uh, issue under the ADA or Title VII. So life in quarantine became something many of us came to know all too much about in 2020. But it looks like the Center for Disease Control, or CDC, recently changed up its recommendations for quarantine time for employees who test positive 
for COVID-19. Alan, can you give us the latest update on these changes and what these new recommendations mean for employers? The length of quarantine has been somewhat of a moving target since we all began this journey of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so currently, as we sit, there are kind of two buckets. You've got the bucket, have the symptoms and or have tested positive, and then you've got a bucket of the folks that have come in close contact with someone that tested positive. If you've tested positive or you have the symptoms of COVID-19, the current guidance is that you quarantine for 10 days from the date that the symptoms started, that you've gone 24 hours without having a fever and you did not take any medication to reduce that fever and your other symptoms are improving. So again, positive or you've got all the signs and symptoms of COVID-19, you've got a 10-day quarantine period from the date that those symptoms start. If somebody has a severe illness from COVID-19, say they were hospitalized, they may likely need more than 10 days and up to 20 days, actually, I think is recommended by the CDC for someone that has a, had a severe reaction to COVID-19. So that's kind of the first bucket. Uh, the second bucket is someone that's come in close contact with an individual that has COVID-19. In close contact, I think we've all heard since March, you know, within six feet for more than 15 minutes, or you provided care, direct care to somebody that has COVID-19, or you've had, you know, direct physical contact with the, the person that tested positive, you've hugged or, or kissed them. CDC would deem that to be close contact. So the general rule has kind of always been that if you came in close contact, you've got a 14-day quarantine period. And I think that's what we've all kind of come to know and expect. However, the CDC in December of 2020, I think recognized that this 14-day quarantine period is a burden on not only uh, the employees, but also employers. And so they've offered some options to reduce the quarantine period for employers to consider with the caveat that they still direct you to look to your local public health authorities with respect to what those quarantine periods should be. But at least the CDC has offered as an option that an employee could return to work after a 10-day period without a test or a seven-day quarantine period after a negative test that the employee received after at least five days from the date of exposure. So they have shortened the window to the extent an employer wants to take advantage of that and it's in compliance with whatever your local health officials are saying. Now, obviously, because everybody understands the 14-day quarantine period to kind of be the law of the land, so to speak, the issue you could have is employee concerns that allowing someone to return before that 14-day quarantine period may present a risk to the other workers in the workforce. And so I really think before you, as an employer, implement these kind of reduced quarantine periods, I think one, you need to consider what your local health authorities are saying. And two, I think you need to sit down and think about, does this make sense for our workforce? Is it going to impact morale amongst the workers if they feel like we're exposing them to some heightened risk? So that option's out there. But again, it, I think that you need to kind of be deliberate in determining whether or not that best fits your, your business. Yeah, definitely a bit of a moving target. Now, Adam, in 2020, there was a lot of employment law buzz around the Families 
first Coronavirus Response Act and its requirement for certain employers to provide paid emergency leave and paid emergency FMLA leave. Now, that law expired on December 31st, 2020, but was that the end of the story for the FFCRA? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I don't think it is the end of the story, but just to reset for those who have lost sight of the FFCRA and the alphabet soup that is employment law, remember that this is a law that essentially allowed for paid emergency sick leave as well as partially paid FMLA extended leave for individuals who worked at employers with more than 50 employees and less than 500, although there are some parts of the law that even applied to uh, those with under 50, even with the exemption that, uh, that applies for small businesses. But you're right, it expired on its own terms, December 31st of 2020. And yet just before that took place, Congress snuck in a stimulus package that, you know, I know that Tara, you probably read it in its entirety, but it was 5,593 pages. So I still haven't gotten around to reading the full text, but I did do a, a find and search to figure out what happened with the FFCRA. And interestingly, it allows for those employers who want to keep providing that emergency sick leave and that emergency FMLA leave, that you can continue to do that through March 31st of this year. Now, that's not mandatory. That's voluntary. And really, it's meant to allow for those employers who want to continue to take advantage of those tax credits that are associated with these payments to uh, continue to do that if they would like to do so. Now, I'm just going to admit something here. I became a, a lawyer because like Chevy Chase, I was, I was told there would be no math involved here. And so I, I don't profess to understand truly in all circumstances where that tax credit is really worth it. So that's a decision to be made while associating with the bean counters at your employer, or perhaps just as a matter of, we think this is the right thing to do. But what I would caution the, the listeners of the podcast uh, is that, you know, you really need to be uniform and consistent with what you're going to do. Really, the way that the law and the stimulus package reads, I think you can pick and choose, but that's a terrible decision from an employment perspective. If you're going to do it, I think you need to do it across the board. And if you're not going to do it, if you haven't already done so, get it off the books on your policies and procedures. Give notice to your employees that there are you know, no longer those opportunities. And remember that even if you do this on a, on a voluntary basis, it did not reset the amount of time and benefits that are available to those employees. But I think the larger issue that's out there on the horizon in terms of have we heard the whole story yet is whether or not the Biden-Harris administration and, and Congress will revisit this issue. Will we see an expansion of the FFCRA? Will we see something new that goes beyond the FFCRA? I mean, the FFCRA in a lot of ways was sort of a revolutionary moment in employment law because overnight it did something that Congress has argued about for a long time, creating some component of paid FMLA leave. And now you have the perfect storm with this administration and Congress in the hands of Democrats that you might see that as a, as a further change. Now, it's Washington, so I won't hazard a guess as to whether that really all comes together or not. But it's certainly something employers need to keep an eye on and understand that that, that story may not have been concluded in its final form and fashion. 
So there's been a lot of talk from the business community about getting protections in place against claims made by employees or customers who contract the virus while at their place of business. Alan, has Oklahoma taken any legislative action to address this issue? Oklahoma has. On May 21st, 2020, Governor Stitt here in Oklahoma signed uh, Senate Bill 1946, which was meant to address the concerns that business owners had with respect to civil liability. And so essentially under this bill, a business employer is shielded from civil liability due to COVID-19 exposure from an employee or a customer if that business slash employer has established and complied with recognized COVID-19 standards at the time of the exposure. And so again, under our law, if the business can show that at the time the plaintiff was exposed to COVID-19, that that business was in compliance with either, say, the CDC guidelines, OSHA guidelines, Oklahoma Department of Health guidelines, Oklahoma Department of Commerce guidelines, if they can show that they were in compliance with two of those entities that have issued certain guidelines, that they could be shielded from civil liability based on an exposure to COVID-19. Kind of as a best practice to kind of invoke that shield would be that an employer probably would need to show that it had implemented some sort of written plan to address COVID-19 exposure in the workplace, probably need to have some kind of administrative and engineering controls that we've all grown accustomed to requiring masks, social distancing, personal hygiene, you know, routine cleaning of the business, especially high traffic areas of the business. Uh, Also probably need to show that not only did you have the policy, but you trained your employees on that policy. You know, a policy is only worth the actual implementation that you go through to convey that to your employees. And then finally, uh, you also need to show that you were enforcing the policy. Again, it does no good to have a policy if you have no intention of actually disciplining employees for failing to comply. So again, I think to have the protections offered under this Oklahoma specific bill, you need to show that you did have a written plan in place, that you did train your employees on that plan, and that you did discipline employees for any violations um, of the plan. And again, I suspect that there are other states that have similar legislation um, that has passed since the COVID-19 pandemic started. But again, that's what we've done in Oklahoma to try to ease some of the concerns that that businesses and employers have with respect to potential civil liability. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. Definitely a lot to think about as this pandemic continues. And thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. It was really nice to be here. Appreciate you. And it's always good to talk to anybody from the ELA. If you'd like to connect with Alan or Adam or any of our lawyers around the world, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. Just go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, where you can also sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks so much for listening.